I, I want to live in a city. I live in North Beach, you know. I didn't come here to live in fucking Belmont, you know, or whatever. Or I stayed here, and I was already climbing things. I loved to climb things from when I was a little kid. And San Francisco was just a revelation. I mean, it was just, it was astonishing. That was John Law, artist, agitator, and climber, among other things. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from artists, writers, teachers, and other San Franciscans, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Welcome to episode 22, part one. In this podcast, John talks about being the kid of a college professor. Because of his dad's work, John's family moved around a bit when he was young. He started hanging out with the fun kids, getting into trouble, and eventually ran away to one of his previous homes in Michigan. Soon after that, John hitchhiked with a friend to the Bay Area. In this podcast, John also tells the story of learning about and becoming a member of the Suicide Club. Here's John. Well, the reason I came to San Francisco, this is why, okay. So I was born in San Luis Obispo. We moved to Oxford, Mississippi when I was five. My dad uh, had come from a working class background, but he was a college professor. He, he's got, he got his uh, college education through the GI Grant after coming out of World War II, war vet and war hero. And uh, so it was a good thing for him. And uh, he was at Cal Poly. Uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was an associate professor at Cal Poly, and he was a coach of their boxing team because they still had collegiate boxing back then in the 50s. And uh, that's, I'm from the 50s, 1958. And, uh, and so when I was four or five, we moved to Oxford, Mississippi because he got a job at Ole Miss University. And uh, he got in a little trouble there because he was vocally pro-integration and it was the year they got their first black student. And he was not popular. And he ended up getting into a scuffle with uh, some football player kid who he knocked down, knocked on his ass because he was a boxer. And he ended up losing his job over it. And so, and he had a family, you know, he had like four kids. Actually, Richard was already gone. He was already off at college and gone, and Patty was, she was still at home. So uh, he needed to support the family, so he needed to get a job where he wasn't going to get fired, right? So he thought, oh, where are we going to go? So he went to this little teeny podunk town and kind of derailed his career. He was kind of on a medium-fast track as an academic. And so he ended up having to go to Ferris State College in Big Rapids, Michigan, which is a little local college. Good job, but, you know, there's no career advancement there for an academic or for, you know, college Never heard of Big Rapids, but that explains Grand Rapids. Well, Grand Rapids has these little rapids, and Big Rapids has a riffle. That's how it works. But so that was a great place to grow up. It seemed boring to me at the time because out in the woods, it's a little teeny town. And but I was out in the woods every day, and it was a college town. So they started getting like all these drugs in there about 1971, 72. So by the time I was in uh, eighth, ninth grade. It, the place was just suffused with drugs and the adults out there they didn't get it they didn't really understand the drug culture it wasn't like parents in, in new york or in la or someplace where they'd already had five six eight years of drug culture it was kind of a new thing so i just smoked out of my brain on pot and my mom had no idea right and uh so uh, we were partying in the woods all the time running around it was a awesome place it was wonderful and then we moved to tennessee my dad got a job at east tennessee state university in 75 and I didn't want to leave because I loved you know I had a lot of friends and we were just having a lot of fun and we were like minor kind of criminal types but not bad you know we're doing stupid stupid so this shit. is like eighth or ninth grade you said you know pa- toilet papering trees and oh, you know, gotcha. shit like that nothing serious we would sneak into cabins out in the woods and that kind of thing that weren't our cabin but you know it wasn't nothing horribly nothing hor- horribly criminal about it right so we moved to Tennessee Johnson City Tennessee which was like 
a gangster town in the middle of the fucking Oz- you know not the Ozarks the you know the the Smoky Mountains. Smoky Mountains. Yeah, yeah. And it was just a lot of crime, a lot of lot of racial issues. Mm-hmm. The they called the area across the railroad tracks where the blacks lived Darky Town. That's what they called it yes, when we moved yeah, there. Yeah. And I hadn't experienced anything like that ever in my life. I was 14 and I'm like, "Whoa, this is weird." So, and this is something I learned then that really stuck with me. The poor white kids were considered trash, right. complete trash, mm-hmm. and they hung out with the blacks, mm-hmm. okay? And as the rich white kids hated all of them and didn't right. hung out. And my dad was a college, I didn't realize this because I was hanging out with the wild kids because that's just, you know, people who were like having fun and partying and fuck you to authority. And so uh, the, um, the rich kids, I got invited to a couple parties because my dad was a college professor, which was kind of like low level, high, higher society in Tennessee, right? So that wasn't as good as being a business owner or like a banker or whatever, or clergy or something, but it was still, I got invited, and I went to him, and like, I remember I was at one party, and the kid was a nice kid, you know, I can't remember his name anymore, but, and it was in a, literally an antebellum mansion, it was this fucking giant place with col- Corinthian columns, and they had black servants with silver trays, and his brother, who was 19 or 20 or 22 or whatever at the time, was going off to be, uh, he was going off to the, uh, either the FBI, one of the academies for one of the, the FBI or one of the, one of the uh, national, you know, like uh, police uh, organizations. I can't remember which one. I think it was the FBI. But anyway, so he was a total, like, squarehead narc, and we'd been out smoking pot, and he braced us really hard, you know, like, fucking, you know, like, so. And, but, 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 and the kid, the kid, I can't remember his name, but he was a nice kid, and I liked him, but that whole, it was so weird. It was just like, I didn't like it, and like, I didn't want to hang out with those people. So I didn't, so I hung out with the, and I didn't know anything about class distinction. I had no idea about it. I hadn't read any, I had no history. And, uh, so I started hanging out with the wild kids, and they were all working-class kids, right? And I realize now their career arc was, you know, you hit 13, you start partying, you party your ass off like fucking crazy till you're 17. You're either knock somebody up, or you know, the woman gets knocked up, or you're or you're uh, in jail, or you're dead by the time you're 20, or you're in, or if you're lucky, you're in the Marines or you know the, the army. That was their whole, and I didn't know that because that's the class they were in, and that's just it was very few people stepped out of that, and so. Uh, and uh, so that was a really weird thing. So there's a lot. We got in a lot of trouble. I got in a lot of trouble there, like serious trouble. I was running with the crew. We were stealing cars, breaking into houses. And I was always a climber. So I'd like, we were in the suburban neighborhood. I'd climb a tree with a roll of tape and tape the fucking window and break it out so nobody could hear it. And I'd go in and I'd go up to the door. We'd all come in, swipe all their guns, swipe all their, you know, electronics. First time I ever saw a dildo was in a suburban house in Johnson City, Tennessee. And there's this drawer, and I open it up, and I go, what the fuck is this? And, like, I didn't know what it was. You know, and if somebody walked in and shot me in the face with a shotgun, it would have been their right to do that. Sure. Because I was in their house with my hand on their dildo, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but we, we, and so, I was like, you. <laughs> when he told me what it was. So you're stealing shit to pawn it, or? I was stealing shit because it was fun. Just to do it. It was exciting. Yeah. I didn't care about it. Thank you. I didn't really need any money. I wasn't broke or anything. Sure. Um, I, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I was a kid, you know, I didn't have, uh, I mean, we were selling a little bit of weed, so I had plenty of money, but um, it was exciting to me. The morality of it never, it never hit me till later that when you break into somebody's house and de- desecrate their shit, it's horrible for them. Mm-hmm. It's a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. All I thought was, wow, it's really fun. Stealing a car is really fun. I stole a bunch of cars and it's really fun driving around a stolen car. But I do think that's a good um, kind of foundation or background for stuff you would do later in your life. Well, what happened, and what saved the... my life, literally, is joining the Suicide Club. Because when I, when I got in tr- I got in a lot of trouble. Um, 
And at the same, this is going to sound weird, but at the same time this shit was happening, my dad had forced me to take college entrance exams, and I got a, I got a scholarship to go to the University of Tennessee. Oh, wow. Yeah, and at, at 16, because okay. I graduated a year early, and I'm already young for my class. So this, and I'm, and I'm getting in all this trouble at the same time, and it was called a Rehabilitation Corporation Scholarship. I think it was for kids who were in trouble, you know, who had good potential uh, ac- academic potential. And it was paid part of the tuition. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Two and a half, three months, dropped out, completely flipped out, like nervous breakdown, drugs and alcohol. Ended up in, uh, in a hospital for two or three weeks. And when I got out of it, I was at home for a little while. And then I ran away from home, skipped juvenile probation because I was on probation already. I went back to Michigan, hung out with my friends there. And then Kenny Unger, my best friend, we're kind of frenemies, but bet more friend than enemy. But we were like you know, competitor friends for our whole, since I was in first grade. Um, he goes, hey, let's go out to California. Ron, my, my, my brother Ron, who's the older brother, who's kind of the older, like, uh, intellectual mentor of ours, because he was reading Wittgenstein in, like, you know, like, 10th grade and shit like that. And so I didn't know who the fuck Wittgenstein was, but he was an intellectual kid. And so we, and he was a cool guy, and we looked up to him. And he was at, U, at UC in the first year of a philosophy program or something like that. And I'm like, fuck it, because it was like a way out. It's like, how do, you know, I didn't want to be a really break. I mean, I didn't want to hurt people at that point, you know. I got in a lot of trouble. I got hurt, and I started realizing how fucked up it was. I just did it because I'm not making excuses for it. If somebody had shot me in the face, that would have been fun. I couldn't complain. Right. You know what I'm saying? If I, my house, somebody's in my house going through my stuff, I'll give them one warning, and I'll shoot them in the face. So I understand that. But with that said, it's a miracle I got through it. And a lot of the guys I ran with there didn't. They ended up, they ended up a couple of them died, you know. I mean, prison, you know, one guy that I remember I didn't hear about for a while, and I, he, he went in the military and got out. So but, California um, was kind of an, an escape. It was a total escape. I'm yeah. like, yeah, California, my God, like the giant rising, you know, the setting sun on the horizon. It must have like, been exciting as fuck. Incredibly right? exciting. Yeah. You know, I left that night, literally, drunk off my ass, left that night, hitchhiking for California. And Kenny had to, Ken had to wait. To the next day, because he had to tell his girlfriend Kim Shornborn that he was leaving. <laughs> wow. he said, I got to tell Kim I'm leaving, and I'm like, okay, if you got to. And so he took off the next day, and we met in Berkeley at his brother's house, and we were sleeping on the back porch. And Kenny was not a city guy. I mean, he hung out with me for three, four days here, and we—I was just out of my mind. I was like, I always want to live in a city. I want to live in the country. Well, whenever we traveled when I was a kid, my dad hated. He was a—he was a, an outdoorsman. He didn't like cities. He would drive around cities. And I'm like, Dad, please drive through New York, please. And he's like, No, we're driving around it. <laughs> like, so I just wanted to go and be in cities. I was, I was eaten up with cities. I still am. I don't want to live in. I want to live in a city. I live in North Beach. You know, I didn't come here to live in fucking Belmont. You know, or whatever. Or you know. But anyway, so after a few days, Ken went up to Oregon, where he had an incredible career. We're still friends. Um, he built handmade boats for a while and kind of did all these crazy things. So I stayed here, and I was already climbing things. I loved to climb things from when I was a little kid. And San Francisco was just a revelation. I mean, it was just, it was astonishing. It's, so a, ver- it's a vertical me, city. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, we'd go up on – before Ken left, I had him. We almost got arrested for climbing one of the apartment buildings on, tele, on Russian Hill. We just climbed the fire escape. Let's climb. I was trying to break in. You know, we're just climbing the fire escape to get a view. You know, we climbed. We climbed up on the the fireman statue in Washington Square Park, which isn't very high, but it's kind of cool. And uh, we're just climbing around on all kinds of. Things. I climbed the little tower at uh, at Marie at uh, uh, the uh, what's what's a little uh, right in front of Ghirardelli Square. So we're climbing around and stuff, and then I, and I ended up being. There's a lot of shit happened. There's too much to talk about, but I mean crazy things. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really know anybody except Ron, and I ended up becoming roommates with Ron. 
later. And we, we first we, the first apartment that I got was a real apartment. It was on Haight Street, right? And I was in a youth hostel, and I ran this kid who thought he was Bob Dylan. He's probably 18, 19. He thought he was Bob Dylan. He kind of looked like Bob Dylan. And uh, this is like 77, 76, 76. This is 76. Yeah, it would have been June, July, July 76. I got here in June, and by July, by August, I was we were in this apartment. And so he had a little bit of money, and uh, I had gotten a job, right? And uh, we were, I was sleeping in this youth hostel at Agape Youth Guild at 171 Margaret Street. And I got a job at Macy's Department Store. I swear to God, I'm not kidding, at the, jewelry, at the watch and jewelry repair counter, which was, a, which was an independent contractor called Time Services Incorporated that, that at that time ran watch and jewelry repair counters in department stores all across the country. Right? They had one in the Emporium. They had one in, uh, you know, like Macy's. They had one in San Jose, uh, whatever, I forget. And, and so uh, I worked for them for about nine months, almost nine months. And it was a real job. You know, I was getting paid reasonably well. You know, not great, but okay. And, uh, and so uh, I had money, so we got an apartment together on Haight Street. And we just let, it became a crash pad because we didn't know any better. We let everybody we ran into the street stay there. Oh, man, can I stay at your place? Yeah, sure. So I remember this old, old, old black dude, BJ who I ended up knowing until he died like 30 years later, who was a jazz musician, jazz and blues musician. Um, he, uh, he was a vibes player and, uh, and, and saxophone. And he plays saxophone out the window. But we let everybody stay there, including all the total loser <laughs> drug addicts. And it got out of hand within a couple of months. And, uh, and we ended up, but we were paying $200 for a four-bedroom apartment. Was it like an old Victorian? Big, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where yeah it was on Cole Street, right across from Straight Theater. It was oh, yeah. 586 Cole or 584 Cole, I can't remember. Just off hate. Still there. Yeah, right off, right off hate. And so I was like ready for the party. Like I said, I was ready for the party. Like, where's the party? And it was Hate Street. It was like, I look out my window, I could see the theater club, which is right across, right, you know, like, uh, right across Hate Street, right on the kitty corner from the Hate Street Theater. Some guys getting knife there every night. Bottle fights, you know, blood on the street every time you're like... I mean, it was crazy. It was, and I'm like, I'm like here. I just think, oh, this is normal, right? This is, I didn't know any better. This is just what it's like in a city, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I had to run. You know, but you could, if you could run, you could get away. I was young, you know. I didn't get, I did get chased a couple of times, but um, you know. So then, Ron kept. He was worried about me because I really wasn't making that many friends. I was exploring a lot. I loved the city so much. All I did after work is I would walk. I literally must have walked hundreds of miles. I walked in all the neighborhoods. I'd go anywhere. I'd dress up like a bum so people wouldn't fuck with me. And I'd go in any neighborhood because I'd already been panhandling. I'd been sleeping in Golden Gate Park for several weeks before I got the apartment and before I got before I got in the youth hostel. Which and Macy's were you working at? Downtown, Central fucking Macy's, right downtown in Stockton. Square, and, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Stockton and uh, and uh, so you just take off from there and dress yeah, up. Yeah, like I take. A bum I go walk. Yeah, I go walk. I go walking right out from there. Yeah, I bring my ratty overcoat, you know, and uh, and just walk. Solo out there. exploring at this point by myself. Yeah, yeah. but I, I loved it. I just go explore all these neighborhoods. At that time, you know where Moscone Center is now. Th- that had been a whole neighborhood full of SRO hotels, and they'd torn them all down. And it was just a giant hole in the ground with these huge recesses under the sidewalk. And there were people camped all the way. Into, and we go hang out with them, you know. And I, oh, the other thing, I quit drinking and I quit doing all drugs completely when I came out here. I decided I was going to not do that. Didn't want to do it. So I was already cleaning up on my own. I wasn't stealing. I totally got out of that mindset. I wanted to get out of it. You know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be that person at all. I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but I just had that feeling. I didn't want to do that. But you wanted to keep excitement. In yeah, I wanted excitement, very much so. And so Ron kept telling me about this thing called Communiversity, right? And it sounded like some wacko cult or something. And uh, he told me It's a good portmanteau. 
It was a it was a free school, you know, free school. People do classes and they don't charge any money. And anyway, I, I kind of couldn't really get my head around it too much. But he showed me the calendar. He was teaching a class on physics and also something else there. Um, and uh, it had been an adjunct of uh, SF State, and then it was taken out of SF State in '76, early '76, by Gary Warren and Rick Lasky and. Rick and Kern, a couple of uh, uh, Shirley Sheffield, and a bunch of other people, and they made it into a 501c3 nonprofit school. And for Gary Warren, who was kind of really the avatar for that group in so many ways, there were a lot of interesting people, but he was kind of the philosophical avatar. He saw that whole thing as an as a as a as a vehicle for exploring life and for like really encouraging people, if not pushing people into doing things that were really exploring. Uh, their capabilities and and their fears, and that's what was so cool about it, is because. And so anyway, Ron just kept telling me about Community University, so I should go check it out. And, and finally, uh, I, I I read the calendar. It's like, oh, how to make tofu? Okay, whatever. You know, uh, VW repair and not, you know, philosophical uh, conversations with you know writers, uh, you know, um, um, conversational French stuff. I mean, good stuff and stupid stuff. And uh, but it, some, some of the classes were kind of, this was the new age era, a lot of goofy stuff that seems totally silly now, but also some quite practical things, a whole range of classes. But it never really got my attention. And then one time he brought back the winter, the, the winter-spring calendar for Community and they had run the Suicide Club as a class in the Community calendar. And he said, I think you'll like this thing. And I read it. Ron remember, said this. Ron said this to okay. me, my buddy. He said, I think you might enjoy this. This is what they're doing now. And we had an apartment. At that time, he and I had rented. I had a good job. He had a good job. He was working part-time and going to school. And we rented an apartment on Knob Hill, on a little dip between Knob Hill and Russian Hill. And it was a two-bedroom apartment, and it was $200 a month on Knob Hill. And we th- and it was expensive. We're like, oh, $200, that's a lot. It's 100 apiece. Hmm, yeah, we can do it. We're working. We can do it. I'm serious. Yeah. And it was a nice little place. And they just, you know, they kind of fixed it up before we moved in they put a new carpet and kind of slapped some paint on it and shit and so we, we didn't have any money to get furniture right so we didn't have any furniture and I remember I was lying in my room I've told this story several times I'm lying in my room kind of hanging out reading and he comes in and he's kind of leaning and Ron's a really tall guy and he has this really kind of funny funny like leer and kind of like grabs his chin and he kind of looks to the side and he's just a, he's an interesting guy and he, he's uh, he says hey read this and so I read the write up and I'm like, I started laughing and screaming and going, they can't possibly be doing what they're saying. This is crazy. They're not going to do this. Really? And he goes, yeah. He's like, yeah. And I literally, I remember rolling back and forth across the carpet and like just laughing. It was so funny. And uh, so he said, well, you got to go sign up for the class, the class, you know, exclamation point or uh, uh, exclamation marks. And, uh, and, um, and it was, uh, and so the way that they did it with Community University as a free school 501c3 nonprofit that was no longer affiliated with SF State, they get somebody they knew to loan them their garage. They have a giant garage sale. And this is part of Gary and, uh, and uh, Shirley Sheffield's philosophy was, see, they had like a 3,000-person mailing list, which is a huge fucking mailing list for that time. And it was from, because they'd been in SF State and a lot of Before quasi, quasi-serious kids. educators were involved in it. So there's yeah. a lot of, they had a lot of traction. So... The way they'd raise money is they'd put out a request for people to donate all their old junk, all their old stuff they didn't need anymore. So they'd give it to them, and then they'd have a giant garage sale, and it was pay what you want. There was no price on anything. And uh, they had a big sign that said, guilt is a terrible thing, <laughs> like H.L. Mencken, right? Great quote. And, uh, but we didn't, like, so what would happen is some asshole would go, we'd give you like a couple bucks, or like 50 cents for like a 
like a $40 stereo, right? Which would be like a $500 stereo now or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, sure, thanks. And for every douchebag like that, there'd be 50 people who'd give you five bucks for something that wasn't worth anything. And we'd make seven, 800 bucks three times a year, which is enough money to do the calendar, the class calendar. And so anyway, Suicide Club was listed as a class. I went in, I signed up for it. And you gotta realize, I'm like a juvenile delinquent, like been stealing cars and shit. And I'm thinking, this is great. I had this whole, I had this whole like, idiot kid you know like mythical image of what the suicide club is going to be like like ninja guys ninja wasn't in the common parlance at the time but ninja guys would be like ninja guys wearing black you know repelling in and like they're all like super fit you know like uh, ranger guys you know this is my dumb ass redneck you know juvenile delinquent kind of mind and uh so i go and 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 ron is telling me we gotta meet these guys david and gary and adrian adrian burke they're the ones who are kind of doing it they're really cool and so where do i meet him and go well gary's got a bookstore out on Bookstore, oh, okay, cool. I like to read. I've read a lot. And uh, so I, I go out to the uh, church. I take the Injuda out from downtown uh, and, and get off at, uh, uh, you know, like the 9th and, 9th and Judah, walk a block down. There's this dingy little, really narrow, tiny storefront, kind of dingy looking, you know, like cramped. And I kind of walk in. It's a Circus of the Souls painted on the window. And, and there's like a big one of those kind of school desks you know you're like having like high school or whatever big mm-hmm. one your teacher would have right to the right and then a big comfy chair right next to it and in the desk behind the desk is this kind of like dumpy looking hippie guy like mid 20 late 20s and next to him was this ancient geezer with a cane kind of like all fucked up sitting back in this chair and I kind of like I'm looking around I almost walked out right and then there's a, there's a there was a toy chi- a rubber chicken hanging from the ceiling that's right I remember that and and so I look at him, and I kind of look around. It's clear. I mean, I'm such a guileless idiot kid, right? I just walked in. I'm like, you know. And I'm looking around, and I go, uh, uh, yeah, how you doing? And I'm like, yeah, I, I was looking for G- Gary and D- David. And, you know, the kind of chunky-looking hippie guy goes, I'm Gary. And the G- ancient geezer goes, I'm David. And I'm like, I was crestfallen. I was like, oh, my God, these guys, these, how are they going to do anything? Like, they're saying, like, we're going to climb into buildings, and we're going to sneak into tunnels, and we're going we're gonna to infiltrate Nazi bars. And that was just the write-up. The was stuff about. you like, read in the pan, in yeah, thing. That's that what I read in la- yeah. yeah, I'm like, how are these guys going to possibly do that? So anyway, I talked to them for a little bit. And I remember, and they were looking at me like a piece of meat, right? And I realized, when I got to know them later, really funny, because they're super fucking amazing guys. But uh, they, like... They were checking me out because they knew I was there for the Suicide Club. And it was an experiment. They were doing an experiment to see who would do the most extreme stuff. And they had a huge, uh, like a philosophy of what I would call, um, mostly, mostly implemented uh, or, or conceived of and implemented by Gary around ethically moving through the world while doing, it was an anarchist philosophy in that, you know, we're going to do whatever we want, but we're going to be very aware of what we're doing, how it affects other people. And, and there, there are choices that you make. And one thing I learned from the Suicide Club, a really important thing, is there's a huge difference between immoral and illegal. Immoral is something you never do, ever. And if you do, you should feel fucking bad about it. And you know what it is, right? Illegal is always, almost always negotiable. And so, at any rate, you know, I, I meet them and I go, okay, whatever. And so I, I, I sign up for the, for the class, the Suicide Club. And uh, I end up going, uh, it was like a week later or whatever. And I show up at the bookstore and... Uh, there's 40, 50 people crammed in this little tiny bookstore, and he kept pillows up above the shelves, like tons of pillows. So they're all pillows on the floor, and he kind of moved some of the shelves out of the way. So it was a big room. There's 40, 50 people lying on the floor in this room, which was kind of cool. And uh, I'd never really seen anything like that. And, um, 
And then they describe what they're going to do. They're like, okay, we're going to, uh, this is an enter the unknown, and it's the first initiation of the suicide club. We're going to blindfold all of you, and we're going to take you somewhere, and you don't know where it is. Exciting. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, okay, all right. And so they did, and I didn't, I knew Ron, Ron was there. I knew Ron, but we weren't, you know, he kind of wasn't hanging directly with me. I think he wanted me to have my own experience. But I didn't know anybody else in the room. And so we were blindfolded, trundled into these, like, fucked up hippie vans and BWW bugs or whatever, and driven somewhere. And we didn't know where it was. It was a long ways away. And um, this is funny because blindfold events became a really big thing in the Suicide Club. And actually, after we'd done it for a couple of years, there were a bunch of us that we would bet where we were. Okay, and right. we got pretty Trying good to guess at it. And we got because you know, oh, we just went down O'Shaughnessy, right? You could tell it was O'Shaughnessy because it curved a certain way. Oh, we just got on the freeway at Fell Street, right? You know, because you could. But 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 then I didn't know the city at all. I didn't know the roads driving in the city at all. So I had no idea where we were. But it was clear that we were somewhere by the ocean because I could kind of smell the ocean. We all got out of the vans, and there there had to be like six or eight people kind of helping organize the event to, to just to wrangle forty five people, you know. And uh, and so. Right, and so we all, they get us all standing in line, holding hands in one line, and, uh, and then um, we were walk, they had us walk along. And at one point, they had us cross over this, like, weird fucking, it was like, it was pretty wide, it was maybe two, three feet wide, like a weird beam or something, but they said, don't step off the beam, whatever you, don't fucking step off the beam. And we're like, uh, okay. And we're like, where is this, like a chasm here? Or what? We, had, we had no idea, right? And the thing is, they used really, the other thing is they used really, they had learned this already by doing weird classes in university. You know, where they did, like, blind walks or what. Because community wasn't just school. They did weird events. It got weirder and weirder, which is why they had to do the suicide club. They had to have a, an independent group to do the kind of quasi-legal stuff. But anyway, so they'd learn how to make a good blindfold. It's like they had these really doughy things they'd make. They'd put, wrap them in a blindfold, put them in, and it pushed right into your eyes. So you could not see. You couldn't look out the bottom and see your feet, right? When you, in a, in a, so they had, a, they had some things down already. So we walk, and, and, and I'm holding hands with a guy on my left. And I don't remember who that was, but there's a woman I'm holding with hands on my right, and, and she said her name was Catherine. And so we're blindfolded walking up this hill for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably 15 minutes, right? Seemed like an eternity. We're talking, and we became instant friends just because of this extreme thing that we were doing. And, uh, and, and then we were, we were clearly in the sand. We got up the top of the hill, and, and, uh, and we could smell eucalyptus trees and could feel the ocean breeze. Oh, we're by the ocean somewhere. I didn't know the city well enough. I'd never been to this point. And uh, so we walk around, and then they have us all walk into what was it? It was a tu- clearly a tunnel, like a concrete tunnel, because you could smell it. It was musty, dank. Kind of, you could hear the echoes. We're in this tunnel, and then we walk way the fuck back in this tunnel, like way. The, and we're not, you know, you know, if there's a hole in the floor, you have no idea. Are they going to chop us up and eat us? I mean, really didn't know, right? And then we got in the middle of this tunnel, and uh, this booming voice, like this stentorian, like booming Shakespearean voice, goes, "Now take your blindfolds off." And you can light your matches because they'd given us all a pack of matches, right? So we took the pack of matches out. They had torn 19 of the matches out. There's only one match left in each of the match packs. And so for about 30 seconds, you see little brief spots of light everywhere. And then it all went out again, and we're totally in darkness again, which is a prank. That's the prank thing, right? And uh, so then Catherine and I, right then, we're really good buddies. You know, we're like hanging together, like, what the fuck's going on? And... Uh, so we start making, our, trying to make our way out. We're feel, cause we can't see anything. We're feeling away along the walls. See a little spot of light. We keep moving towards it. It gets bigger and bigger. It's a square gray light, and there's a figure standing in the middle of it in flowing robes. Like, wow, that's really spectral and creepy, right? And we get cl- and closer and closer and closer. And it, you know, at night in the darkness, after being blindfolded, looking at a point of light, it could be a million miles away or it could be like 20 feet away. It's hard to tell. 
but it was probably about 200 feet away. We got close to it. Finally, the figure just sort of walked away, and by the time we got outside, sure enough, we're in these big bluffs above the ocean at Fort Funston, and we're in the bunkers, which are open at that time. Yes. Right? And uh, so then we walk out, and then we hear we're supposed to, then everybody says, okay, we're going to gather over here. So we gather around the corner, and here's this guy, this crazy, tall, like really scary-looking archimage in this cloak, right? And then he's got, he's got a fire going, and it's like, I'm looking at him. It was the geezer, David Warren, right? The guy that I thought was a loser guy, right? And he's just like, really, and he's like his deep, like, theatrical voice. And he goes, gather around. Now we're going to, you're being inducted into the suicide. And it was corny, and they knew it was corny, but it was also kind of spectral. And we got in a circle, and he was, at that time, I later claimed, I'm not sure it's true, but I'm pretty sure it might be true, that he was the only fire eater in San Francisco at the time. Because I don't remember any others, you know, by 80, we knew a lot of people in town. I don't remember there being any others. And uh, he, did a, he did a little fire thing where he had everybody hold their hands out, he touched your hand with the flame, and then they passed around two bottles, a bottle of life and death. So it was this totally goofy ritual, but it was also very cool. And then we were all inducted into the suicide club. Yeah, and uh, so that was my introduction to that. And I was fucking, this is it, this is all I'm doing. I don't care about anything else. For the next five years, every job I had, every bit of energy I had, everything I had went into doing events. I started doing events immediately. That was John Law. Join us Thursday when John will fast forward, skipping over a lot of stuff he's done, to let us know what kinds of things he's up to these days. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on everything we do. Find all 70 episodes on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If that happens to be Apple Podcasts and you have a minute to spare, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.